welcome to the Hybrid Cub Scout Podcast with me, Emily Einolander. And me, Corinne Kalaski. Hello! We're mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing, and today we have Danny Kane of the Raven Bookstore with us. Danny Kane is the author of the poetry collections Continental Breakfast and El Dorado Freddy's, as well as the chapbook Uncle Harold's Maxwell House Haggadah and the zine How to Resist Amazon and Why. His poetry has appeared in Diagram, Hobart, Barrel House, and Mid-American Review, among other places. The Midwest Independent Booksellers Association declared him the 2019 Midwest Bookseller of the Year. He lives in Lawrence, Kansas, where he owns Raven Bookstore. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to start with our favorite icebreaker question. Actually, Corinne should ask this one because it's, it's her special it's my specialty. I am a cat person. Um, okay, so tell us about your shop cats. Um, Dashel. Dashel, thank you. And then Nayo, is that right? Nayo, yeah. They're both, they're named after mystery authors. Oh, um, cool, so okay. Dashel is named after Dashel Hammett. Sure. Uh, and Nayo is named after Nayo Marsh, who was uh, a golden age crime fiction writer who's a, a kind of contemporary of Agatha Christie. So. Oh, very cool. Cl- okay. Classic. Um, they came with the store. It wasn't nice. my idea. Yep. <laughs> so you were uh, like, I don't want this store if the cats aren't coming with it, basically. Well, it's, I think it would, uh, we would have lost a lot of customers if, yeah. uh, you know, they're, they're, sure. part of the, they're part of the package. Right, Dash of course. Dash was a bit younger. Um, he's a tabby mm-hmm. and he is very gregarious. Ah, okay. He really loves to you know, flirt and be social um, with grownups. He's not super fond of kids. um, And he he likes to act very tough around dogs. He'll get all um, like muscly and and (laughs) intense when there's a dog in the store. Uh Um, And Nayo is much more refined. We call her the queen. Um, (laughs) We can can kind of go days without seeing Nayo. And then all of a sudden she'll try to sit on every lap of everybody who sits down. Um, but she's very regal and poised, uh, and she's just this tiny black cat. Oh, okay, okay. And how old? You said Dashel's the younger one? Yeah, well, but they're both kind of old, so I think oh, Dashel's okay. 10, and maybe Nayo's 12. Oh, wow, um, okay, okay. Yeah. All right, very cool. They came to the store, I think, in around 2010, oh, when, okay. they were, when they were kittens. Right, right, okay. So they've kind of, so they're used to sort of like the hubbub of a bookstore. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, that's good. That's important. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, so tell, tell us a little about the origin of the bookstore, how you came to be, um, be the owner of it, and uh, what kind of books you sell. Just give us an overview. Sure. Uh, it opened on September 1st, 1987 as a mystery-only bookstore. It's a very tiny store. Um, it was founded by two women, um, Pat Katie and Mary Lou Wright, who had met in college and then reconnected in Lawrence years later. Um, no bank would take them seriously enough to give them a loan. They thought it was a hobby. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, indeed. So they scrapped together funding from friends um, and second mortgages and they, they, you know, they, they got it open. The first customer was Matt Dillon, who oh was in God. town. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, what did he buy? A couple mysteries, a couple paperbacks. Oh. He was okay. in town to film a movie. They've saved the receipt somewhere. That's um, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Wow. They didn't frame it. 
<laughs> it's in a scrapbook. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they um, eventually expanded, but for the first mm, 20 years or so, it was, they really stuck to the like mystery and local only. Um, the little bit of, of nature. Um, only kind of local authors? In. Right. Uh, well, no, so mysteries from everywhere and then local authors as well. Um, but then in 1997, a Borders Books and Music opened right across the street. Oh, come um, on. Yeah. It's like the Amazon store across the street from Parnassus in Nashville. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. And I, as soon as I saw that, I, I, I thought we've been there. I think I even sent them a tweet saying as much. Um, so that, that changed things for a lot of independent retail in downtown Lawrence. Um, many other bookstores closed. Um, there used to be a lot more stores than there are now. Somehow the Raven persisted. Um, and then in 2008, they sold the store to um, Heidi, who Heidi hired me eventually. I moved to Lawrence in 2014 to start an MFA in poetry at the University of Kansas. I had never lived in a town that had a bookstore like the Raven, so I instantly wanted to get a job there. Um, I began a campaign. It took about six months. Um, <laughs> becoming a you. store regular and becoming a, a friendly fa I had a friend on the inside because a, a grad school friend of mine, someone from the program worked there and she started working on Heidi to try to get me a job in there. And then about six months after moving to Lawrence, I started working at the Raven and it was everything I thought it would be. It was a dream come true. And then I started just to get more and more curious and involved with, with as many parts of the business as I could. Um, and then when I finished, when I got close to finishing my degree, Heidi started talking about retiring and uh, it just worked out. The timing was great. So then in August, I graduated in May, 2017. In August, I took over as the new owner of the store. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it's a dream come true. Not everyone can say that about their careers. <laughs> I know, I'm lucky. All right. So have you always been pretty active online or did you dive in more as a business owner? It's a good question. I don't, I don't think I've, I wouldn't consider myself, I wouldn't have considered myself super active online. Um, I am of the generation, like Facebook was invented when I was a freshman in college. Like mm -hmm. it was the, we were the, <laughs> The first generation on social media, really, um, that the the class of two thousand eight. You know, we we were there when it started. Um, so it, it's not really a. It hasn't always been a thing for me, um, and I wouldn't have guessed that it would have been such an important part of my business. Um, for those of you who may not know, um, uh, Raven Bookstore is pretty big on book Twitter and Instagram. So um, you should go check them out. Lots of entertaining tweets and photos, including ones of the cats. So if that's not a selling point, I don't know what is. That was the, that was the, really all I thought of it was, it was just to show, a way to show off the cats, especially right. on Instagram. And the rule had always been a, a cat post would always get twice as much attention as a book post. And it was just like, okay, so we'll, anytime the cats are doing something silly, we'll take a picture and post it. That's literally all I thought about it, <laughs> uh, you know, until last year and then everything blew up. Right. Right. Yeah. So segueing into our next question, actually. So what drew you into a more sort of activist role in the book community? 
Um, the 2016 presidential election. Ah, uh, yes. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it was even before that, I think. Um, Kansas is an interesting place. Um, I think a lot of movement, a lot of things that happen politically in the nation kind of start in Kansas, like um, the the governorship of Sam Brownback was kind of the Tea Party practice run. All those economic policies started here with, uh, with Brownback's tenure as governor. And um, I just think, especially nowadays, um, at this point in the presidential election, eyes kind of people look at the Midwest um, yeah. for for you know for the politics for political right. reasons, and so it's I, I I lived I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Cleveland is a classic, or Ohio is a classic swing state. It's another really interesting political place. But like just coming out to Kansas as the the nation was kind of heading in the direction it was in made me pay attention. Um, in new ways. And then um, I think book selling is a naturally political profession. Um, there's very little that booksellers do that you can't call political. And e- even before I took over, um, we would put together displays of like read indigenous voices, um, like novels by Native Americans. Um, mm-hmm. Or, or working on stuff for Black History Month, and and Heidi always gave me the green light on whatever I wanted to do, and so it started with these little displays. But um, the more time I spent book selling, the more I realized it's a political profession. Um, and anybody who tries to be a bookseller, not apolitically, doesn't understand what political means. I don't think. Yeah, even if you, um, I worked at Powell's for the Christmas season. I was uh, I was supposed to work there longer, so they gave me a section. Um, and just the very idea of like, oh, what I have all of these books with the spine out, but on the shelf, I have to face some of the books out. Which mm-hmm. ones do I face out? Like, which ones do I want people to see, and which ones do I want people not to see <laughs> as <Right>. much? <laughs> And that's the that's the the most basic gesture of book selling is what to display. But like even in that, you can make an argument. Um, you can engage with ideas. You can be political in that that very most basic building block of book selling. And so then you add things like newsletters or social media accounts, and it's like, what are you trying to say as a store? And I think a small, especially a small independent bookstore can really be an effective activist space. And there's, I don't think it's just us. There are a ton of other bookstores that are doing really interesting activist work um, and it's a natural fit. Do you have some book, uh, bookstores off the top of your head that we should check out who are doing oh, activist yeah. work? Well, last summer, um, A Room of One's Own in Madison, Wisconsin led a campaign called Booksellers Against Borders um, where they, they had, uh, they just rallied a bunch of bookstores to donate a portion of their sales over a given weekend to Raices to help with legal aid for people, for refugees at the Southern border of the United States. They raised more than a hundred thousand dollars through that oh campaign. Oh my God, that's amazing. And that was one idea from one bookseller in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I think I, there are a ton of really interesting stores in New York city, but I think about the strand and their, their, their battle of to be, they don't want to be declared a landmark, but the city wants to declare them a landmark. Um, 
so they, they've they've done really interesting things with how they tell their story um so it's or, or even parnassus making their case to nashville as amazon moves in across the street mm -hmm. um there you know and patcha and her gang are, are you know even beginning that store um there was no independent bookstore in nashville for the longest time and and the, the to say, I think there's an audience for independent retail in this in this city that that hasn't traditionally shown it. That's a great kind of political statement. Absolutely. I actually lived in Nashville for about two years and I was always shocked that there was no, you know, mm -hmm. like reliable independent bookstore to visit. It was just like as a book person, it was just like that felt like sort of unforgivable. Um, yeah, exactly that too. So it was just, I was so happy when she finally opened yeah. that, um, you yeah. know, and that finally has a presence there. So um, I wanted to ask too, do you think that there's maybe a greater spirit of solidarity now among sort of independent bookstores across the country since, well, I guess since both Amazon has kind of creeped into your territory and also since the, you know, political situation has gotten more divisive in the past few years too, do you find there's sort of more solidarity now? Yeah, I, I do. Um... Well, and it's it's kind of tricky because my my full time entry into the bookselling happened as Donald Trump was rising to right. power. So mm -hmm. in a way, I don't know that much about bookselling before Trump, but I can say that um, it's an amazingly welcoming and supportive community. And it's there's no it, when we get together for conferences or meetings, there's no sense of competition. Um, or, or protecting our secrets. Uh, mm -hmm. We at our national conference at Winter Institute in Baltimore a couple weeks ago, there was a, this Harvard professor, Ryan Raffaelli, has been doing a study, kind of a, like an anthropological business study on independent bookstores and their survival. And he's like, how are bookstores doing so well when they're not supposed to? And he wrote this whole white paper about <laughs> it, which was really amazing. But he said of all the businesses he's ever studied, nobody has been as this never he hasn't seen as much solidarity as he has with independent bookstores like we That's all share amazing. our best practices with each other mm -hmm. and he never sees that it seems perfectly normal for us because the more bookstores the merrier of course uh, so one of my favorite parts about the industry is how i mean it's it's not perfect it's not we're not all holding hands and singing the rainbow connection right. but really <laughs> um we're, we're very, very supportive of each other. And I think the idea is just the rising tide raises all ships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I love using the rainbow connection instead of kumbaya <laughs> in this situation. <laughs> I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> Warms my heart. Um, okay, so let's get into uh, how to resist Amazon and why. Um, how did that get inspired? And um, how did you decide to put it together? And wh what did you use as a heuristic to kind of organize it? Sure. Um, well, I wrote the, there was the whole, the, there were in April, we, I posted a, a tweet thread that went viral about pricing on Amazon and why, why books are more expensive than any bookstores. And that got me that, that really blew up our platform and made me think about activism and the story I was telling. And I wanted to make sure now that I was lucky enough to have this platform, I didn't want to waste it. Um, so I was much more conscious and careful about what went up on social media. One of the things, well, as, as I'm assembling these arguments and be, becoming this, this small business activist, I was like, what's my thesis statement? What am I, what's my goal? What am I fighting for? 
I want this to like if I want to consider it a success. So I kind of laid that all out in this letter, an open letter to Jeff Bezos. And I posted it across all of our platforms and, and people were engaging with it and seemed really interested in it. But then my friend, uh, Suzanne, who runs Max Bax Books in Cleveland, um, which is one of my hometown bookstores, sent me a message that said, if you turn this into a broadside, I could sell it to my customers. Um, I was like, okay, that's kind of interesting. And that reminded me of a discussion, a separate discussion I had been having with, with my friend, Ben, who went to the same creative writing program as I did in Kansas. We were talking on Twitter about zines and he was like, man, someone should make a bookstore zine about um, Amazon and helping people unplug from Amazon. And like that popped into my head combined with Suzanne's text. And I was like, why don't I just combine all of this stuff into a zine? Um, and in, in grad school, that was, I made like 20 zines in my career in, in grad school. Just like every time I had 10 poems, I would throw a zine together. I would like bring, go to a, show up to a reading and have a pile of zines to sell. And like, maybe it could pay for my beers afterwards or something. It was just, <laughs> I was at the point, um, it's lucky now, I didn't think about it at the time, but I can make a zine in a couple hours. I have templates on my computer. It's just something I do. Um, so I took, I screenshotted all the tweets. I, I put the letter in there. I added a couple new essays. Um, and then it, it was important for me to end with a list of concrete steps about how you can unplug and resist Amazon. Um, and so really it was just kind of assembling it across the course of an afternoon. And I was like, okay, you know, I'll like, I'll make a hundred, I'll go to Kinko's, I'll copy a hundred, I'll pull out the long arm stapler and we'll, we'll sit around the dining room table tonight and staple these. And then, I think I got um, one of the stapled ones. <laughs> Where is it? Where did we put it? Oh, you we, can we tell set it somewhere. <laughs> the, um, the gray ones, if it's grayscale on the cover. Yeah, that's an original. Yeah. We got an so. original. Oh, awesome. <laughs> we got it from Jan's paperbacks in Beaverton, Oregon. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, yeah, so the, the gray ones, anything, any of the gray ones, I, I hand stapled at my at dining room table and like it started selling like crazy out of the store. I started hearing from bookstores. I set up a little page on my website where bookstores could order them and it became really clear that I was going to need some help. <laughs> um, so um, was part of the reason that you connected with Joe Beal because you're both from Cleveland? <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> actually, that was a really pleasant surprise. Um, and so Joe just really fortuitously sent me a message and was like, um, I think we could sell this. I think um, we could put out a version of it. And we, uh, the negotiations were very easy, but it's a non-exclusive contract. So we still sell our Raven version and, and they sell the microcosm version, but it's, I mean, they sold, it took about five weeks to sell through their first printing of 5,000 copies. Wow, um, and that's incredible. Yeah, both the Raven and the Microcosm Edition are in second editions. I've I've contracted it out. I'm no longer stapling. Um, <laughs> That's good to hear. That'd be yeah. a lot of work. <laughs> just hours. I was spending hours at Kinko's just standing. I would bring my laptop and do work while I was waiting for the photocopier. Yeah, that um, sounds kind of miserable. But it's like, I don't know, it was cool, at least in the beginning, to try to yeah. have like a DIY ethos, but then it got totally out of control. But I'm glad, <laughs> I mean, of course, to, to have it be in this many places and see it in this many stores and have this huge audience um, is way beyond any of my expectations, but I'm really happy to see it. Yeah, so are we. Yeah. Yeah, and thank you a million times over for creating it, honestly. 
Well, thanks for saying that. When we started this podcast, we were kind of trying to do that, but I think we just really got overwhelmed because we started doing research into Amazon and we're like trying to figure out what's going on. And we worked at a, you know, we, well, you still do. We worked at the same publishing company. And so it was just like jumping into that whole world was really overwhelming. (laughs) So, and it, it didn't quite affect us at the same level as it would a bookseller. Like since working at a bookstore, I I would probably be able to explain it a lot better. But when we got into it, we were just like, whoa, this is, this is a mess. Yeah. Yeah, It puts publishers in a funny place because a lot of people obviously are opposed to the way Amazon does business and the, the amount of control they have over the entire industry. But for a publisher really to take on Amazon, you're, you're yelling at someone who's responsible for half of your sales. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. if and Amazon is perfectly, can perfectly legally say like, up oh, everything from Penguin Random House is going to appear on the fifth search page and beyond, mm-hmm. or we're just not going to sell it. And that, that would be a huge hit. So um, it's, they really have much too large of a, of a, a chokehold on the industry. Um, but one of the reasons I was so excited to work with Microcosm is because they were one of the few that have taken um, a very clear and vocal stance and said, we're going to really try hard not to do business with Amazon. And it's, it's, it's reaped huge rewards for them. Their sales have gone way up. They had an amazing year last year um, since unplugging from Amazon. Yeah. And if you, um, that's part of the reason that we tried to, uh, that we got an interview with them was because we saw the Publishers Weekly article come out. And I think there was a period of time where I was trying to convince our boss to do the same thing. Cause I was like, look, someone in town did it. Like we should do it too. And they were looking at me like, um, <laughs> no, like we should do that with our exclusive books. And they're like, like, uh, no, no, let's not do that. But, um, yeah, it was a big article and everyone was just like, yeah. how is this possible? Like you you can't do that. And he's like, our sales are getting better. And let me quote you all the numbers. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, on they the just, show, he quoted all the numbers. Yeah. Just today they posted, a, uh, they're hiring another full timer for their warehouse because of that's the shipping awesome. demands. Which, wow. That's really yeah. great. Well, and I think in the zine too, it's really great that you post, you sort of added um, like concrete steps that people could take to sort of, yeah. you know, like don't review books on Goodreads or like don't shop at Whole Foods. Because I think it's like a lot of people don't know exactly how big Amazon's overreach right. is and like how it bleeds into every part of your life. Yeah. So I just have to say again, thank you for including that. Cause I think that is super helpful. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, oh yeah. I'll take the next one. Do you have any more? Amazon related thoughts? No, just that I hate them. But I mean, I think we're all on the same page here. So, um, so now you went to school for poetry. Um, mm-hmm. So, can you tell us sort of how you became interested in that in the first place? Uh, I mean, it's just a really good high school teacher. It, how it, it's, mm-hmm. I feel like that's how it always starts. Yeah. Um, I was just telling this story to my writing club yesterday. Um, we were. Uh, it was AP English in 12th grade and um, like part of one of the things on our syllabus was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. Right. And, um, <laughs> for, for 
whatever reason, my teacher, I, don't, I still to this day don't know why she did this, but she was like, we cannot talk about this poem in this classroom. We have to go somewhere else. And so she booked the like the grown up conference room across the hall from the principal's office with like the swivel chairs and everything. Mm -hmm. And we like, it was basically like, we're going to go to this room and only emerge after we've unlocked this poem. And wow. so we like spent three days. And oh my the, God. The, um, <laughs> The, Sounds the, like Bible study camp, <laughs> except more fun. <laughs> something about the, the the moving to a different space and, and treating this poem with this this degree of respect, um, it it really caught. Um, and then, as soon as I got to college, a couple months later, I started writing really bad love poems. And yeah, um, I actually hardcore. My first, my first publication of poetry was in a zine that my friend made um, and they would put one on each lunch table in the cafeteria, um, oh. like scissors and glue sticks at the copier. And it came out like once every two weeks. And I like, they did six of them and I had a poem in five of them. Um, so it, you know, it's been poetry and zine since the beginning. So it was just a, a natural jump to, right. uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, I'm going to ask this question because I have to give Corinne shit about it. She She's the one who was like, what's your take on Instagram poetry? And I just want to say, <laughs> I just want to out you as saying you hate it. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, as someone who, you know, is uh, a poet yourself and has, you know, taken classes, obviously a ton of schooling. I mean, mm -hmm. do you consider it poetry? Do you not? I mean, I just like, I know that's such a, it's just such a like tricky question because like, what is poetry, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. So I just wanted to get your take on this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Every every time someone asks me a, a big, like zoomed out question about poetry, I like, I want to run away and hide. Uh, I don't. Especially a leading question, Corinne. <laughs> Sorry. I just, I feel, um, Though I have studied it and and created books of it, I feel uh, no right to to cast broad definition level anything about poetry because sure. poetry is a really big tent and that's a great thing and I think poetry even more than others has shown an ability to welcome and champion all kinds mm -hmm. of voices, um, which is something that that certain places seem to be having trouble with these days. Right. Um, so I like, I like, who am I to, to shit over some, something that a lot of people like? I don't know. And it's like Rupi Kaur as a bookstore owner. We love Rupi Kaur. Oh, um, I did not know that about her actually. Okay. Now. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, she sold a lot of books and yeah, it's like right. poetry sections are doing well. And a lot more young people are hanging out back there. Um, and, um, there have been a few people who have come in and, and looked for what's next after they read both of her books. And instead of sending them towards other Instagram poets, we'll be like, here's some Denez Smith or here's some e-viewing. And, and that's really rewarding and fun. Yeah. One of the, one of the first poems, one of the first poets that hooked me was Billy Collins, who I totally roll my eyes at now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but back in the day, I didn't think poetry could be funny. And here's this old guy cracking jokes. And I'm right. like, oh, okay, this isn't as serious as I thought. So I don't know. I used to read uh, Keats before bed when I was 16 and cry myself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ashamed anymore. Not anymore. <laughs> 
There was the, I'll say one more thing about Rupi Cower though. There was that, well, I forgot what magazine it was that called her the writer of the decade. Oh, it was, I think it was the Atlantic or the, no, it was the like New that. Republic. It may be it was New the Republic. New Republic. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Corinne texted me when she saw that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> She's like, What's happening? <laughs> Such a perfect um, troll move on their part. Like, <laughs> they knew exactly what they were doing. Um, like, like let's make twitter talk about this for weeks it's like okay mission accomplished yeah that's true it's kind of brilliant that is kind of brilliant now that i think about it that's true um so who are a few of your favorite poets and have there been any poetry collections that have come out recently that we should sort of look into sure well the i think the first the most the the kind of touchstone book for me and what i write now is probably lunch poems by frank o'hara which is a classic Uh, um but I love everything about that book, mm-hmm. um, including the tiny trim size. Like I really like small, like the pocket poetry is a cool idea. Um, lately, um, I studied in Cleveland with um, Philip Metris. Uh, his most recent collection is um, Sand Opera um, from a couple of years ago, but he has a new one coming out from Copper Canyon this spring called Shrapnel Maps. Um, and we worked on that a little bit when I was his student. Um, I, I read a very early version of it for him and it's an amazing book. Um, he's a huge influence on me and a great teacher. Erica Meitner is a friend. Um, her book, uh, Copia, was important in putting together my first book. And she had a collection last year called Holy Moly Carry Me. Both of them are from BOA editions. Um, and they're very, very good. And then um, I love uh, Jennifer Knox too. She put out four books from Bloof um, and she's making the, the jump to the big leagues with Copper Canyon this fall too. And she writes the most outlandish and hilarious poetry. But again, um, someone who shows me that um, you can be wacky in a poem, um, that's, that's important. And her poems are very, very funny and very weird. Great. I love it. Thank you for, I don't read a lot of poetry, but um, I feel like I should to be part of the zeitgeist. (laughs) So where can people find you online? Oh, well, my website is just dannykane.com. It's D-A-N-N-Y-C-A-I-N-E.com. All my books are up there. You can read a bunch of my poems that are online and my tour dates uh, for the upcoming El Dorado Freddy's tour are on the website as well. Perfect. And then Twitter for the bookstore. Twitter, right? of course. Yeah. Well, Twitter, it's at Raven Bookstore is the big boy account. And then um, at Mr. Kane is my personal Twitter. Um, so that's like poetry it. and book news. Yeah. Cool. All right. Anything else you want to plug? <laughs> El Dorado Freddy's comes out March 3rd from Belt Publishing. All right. Pre-orders well, are important. Oh, yeah. They super are. <laughs> Go pre-order books. Yeah. Not from Amazon. No. Order, <laughs> order it right from Belt. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll make sure to link that. Also, okay. if you're linking books, everyone, if you're linking books, never link to Amazon. Don't do it. <laughs> All right. Um Danny, thank you so much for thank being Thank you. This is super fun. Oh man, I uh, it was great to talk to you. And um yeah, so follow us um at Hybrid Pub Scout on Twitter, uh, Hybrid Pub Scout Pod on Instagram. Um, We're on Facebook. We have a Facebook page, Hybrid Pub Scout. And thanks for giving a rip about books.